Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And once again, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to the final episode of Season 10 of the Firetime Podcast. This is an episode I've been really, really excited for. If you've been listening to this podcast for any time now, you know that we finish off every season with a Q&A episode. And I absolutely love these because... There's so many things that come up over the span of a season of the podcast, and sometimes, whether it's in an interview or a solo episode, there's nuance that I'm not able to give because I don't understand the direct context of your particular business. And so these episodes are just amazing to be able to answer these questions and clarify the principles that we've been talking about for your specific company. Now, just as a reminder, if you have questions for our next Q&A episode, which is going to be at the end of season 11, you can send those in by just shooting me a quick email. My email address is tim at itsfiretime.com. That's tim at itsfiretime.com. And I am just amazed at the ground that has been covered this season. There's some amazing, amazing guests that we've talked to. And while this season was airing, it was a really, really big travel time of year for me. And I ended up going all over the country multiple times into Canada and almost everywhere I went, there were people that resonated with really specific episodes. And it was just cool to hear how the podcast is making a difference in people's businesses. And that's the hope is that, is that this can be a vehicle and a catalyst for change in our industry that we desperately need. So with that, I want to dive straight into these questions because they are absolutely phenomenal. And also, I have to wake up really early tomorrow morning for a flight out to the East Coast. So let's get into the Q&A. All right, so as we get started here, this is a question that actually came in when I was in eastern, eastern Canada just a few weeks ago, and it's a really good question from a retailer out there. And here's the question. We have a large store that's a lot to take in. How soon should we greet customers who come in? And this is a really, really good question. So as you likely know from the seven-step sales process that we teach, Step one is greet the customer. And for me in particular, there are a number of things that I really like to be true in the greeting to make sure that we start things out on the right foot and that we have a chance to build trust and understanding before we get too deep into the process. And so suffice to say, I make a really big deal out of greeting. And with that in mind, I would say there's a couple different philosophies to greeting the customer, and it's going to depend on the size of your showroom. So in this case, this is a large store. And I would say in a large store, my recommendation is that when someone walks in, within the first five to 10 seconds, they should be greeted, but not assaulted. And, and oftentimes that can be someone from a little ways away, just waving and saying, Hey, how are you guys doing today? Thanks so much for coming in. We'll be with you in just a minute. Feel free to have a look around, right? Something just to acknowledge the customer. Hey, they're here. We care about them. 
We'll be with them in a minute. Go ahead and have a look around because sometimes people want to walk around and get the lay of the land. You know, for me, I'm, I'm very sensitive if I'm at like a car lot or if I'm at a cell phone store or appliance store, other, other places that are, you know, selling environments to being greeted too forcefully. And I believe that you can still greet a customer right in those first five to 10 seconds and give them a little bit of breathing room. And in a large showroom, that can be really, really helpful. Now, I'll caveat this and say, if you're in a smaller showroom, one of the things that I've found that is really, really effective is when someone comes in, you do the same sort of thing. So when they come in, you you put up your hand and you wave and you say, hey, how's it going today? Thanks so much for coming in. You get up from your desk, walk around your desk, and then go up to the customer and extend your hand and just say something like, hey, it's great to meet you. My name's Tim. And if you can do that with sincerity, something special happens. I I found in smaller showrooms, oftentimes it's a little bit more of an intimate feel. There's not as much to take in. And oftentimes the showrooms are just not as impressive. And when those are all factors in your situation, you want to make sure that immediately you show a human to human connection. And that's a really, really big deal. So I think the biggest thing in a greeting is sincerity. And again, I always avoid the five words of death. How can I help you? Don't ever say that. And it's not that it's mean. It's not that you don't mean it, but customers have been conditioned to say, oh, no, thanks. I'm just looking when they hear those words. Those words do not invite a connection. They actually push away a connection. Instead, when a customer comes in, just think about this. If if someone raises their hand and waves at you and says, hey, how's it going? Thanks so much for coming in today. We'll be with you in just one minute. If you'd like, you can have a look around. That is genuine. And then when they get up and they, they walk around the desk and they walk over to that customer and say, hey, my name's Tim. Thanks so much for waiting. We really appreciate it. That invites a connection. And that's what we want our greeting to do. When a greeting is not sincere, customers can tell. And, and for me, as I secret shop, oftentimes I am not greeted in a sincere manner. It's often a salesperson that is overworked, they're burned out, and they just glance at me and go, hey, how you doing? How can I help you today? Or I'll come in and they'll glance up from their papers and say, I'll be with you in a minute. They don't show genuine sincerity that they're glad I'm in there. So make your own application on that. I would just say in general, big showrooms, it can be helpful to give the customer a little bit of space to breathe, but make sure they're greeted within five to 10 seconds. Even if your showroom is totally full of people, make sure they're at least initially greeted in five to 10 seconds. In a small showroom, I would not give the customer that time to walk around because there's just not as much to see. And I would start the human to human connection very soon after they come in. So I hope that helps you. Okay. Next question. Oh man. Okay. This is a good one. This actually just came up literally last week and I'm going to paraphrase the question because it's long. The question is, I've never been a manager before and don't know how to do it. I like the people I work with, but don't know what I'm supposed to do. How do I manage a team when no one has shown me? And this was a, it was a very long question that I got. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it here, but man, it's a good one. And, and I, I hear this all the time. And I, and I think what is really, really difficult is that in our industry, 
we often promote people into management or leadership positions that are terrific individual performers. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but being excellent at individual performance does not make you ready or capable of leading people. It doesn't mean that that person is not able to learn how to lead people, but it's not a one-to-one correlation. And and the best way I know to summarize it is something that Tim Rethlake told me I don't years ago, probably five or six years ago. We were driving through, I think, Minnesota from Minneapolis out to Lake City where the heat and glow plant was. And he said, Tim, when you're an individual salesperson, your job is to shine. But when you're a sales leader, your job is to illuminate. And those are two different muscles. And and he is so right. And when you become a manager or a leader, it's no longer about what you can do. It's about what your team can do. And it's about how you can inspire them. Some of the pitfalls are sometimes managers, because they can sell better, because they can work harder, because they're more experienced and what have you, they try to solve every problem for their team. They jump on every grenade. And what they become is they become the genius with a thousand helpers. But the problem is, if you're really good at answering every question for your team, what's your team going to do? They're going to ask you every question. And it's one of those things like diving catches create more diving catches. And so the goal of a leader or a manager is to inspire the team and illuminate the way for them. And, you know, Jim Collins says you want to go from being a time teller to a clock builder, right? You don't want your team just to look at you and say, hey, what time is it, Tim? And I go, oh, it's 1230. And they ask you two minutes later, hey, what time is it, Tim? Oh, it's 1232. You want to build a clock so the team can see what time it is. And and I think that that's a very apt metaphor. But getting really, really practical, this was tough because for me, when I became a manager, again, I'd never managed people. I'd had some results from individual performance, was put in a management position, and, and you know it was on-the-job training after that. I would say this. I would say the most important thing you can do is create a framework of management. If you don't have a framework that you can manage to, then it's just leading by chaos. And at best, you're going to try something for a while and then give up on it and try something else and give up on it. And that gets really wishy-washy for team members that are working for you. So here's where I would start regarding a management framework. I would create a weekly, monthly, and quarterly rhythm of management. So say that you're a sales manager. Here's what it looks like. You have a weekly sales meeting with your team. Every week you have a sales meeting. And you know, earlier this season, we talked about how to have a sales meeting and agenda and everything else. So you can go back and listen to that episode. But every week you have a sales meeting. Every month you have an individual meeting with everyone on the team that reports to you out of the office. And in that one-on-one meeting, you're not talking about their job. You're investing in them as a mentor. And you're talking about, how's it going in general? What can I be doing to help you? What goals do you have? Is there anything that I can be doing to help you hit those goals? How am I doing for you as a boss? Is there anything around you that's frustrating or a roadblock you're running into that I can remove for you? The meeting is about them. It's about how you can help their lives get better. Every single month, you do it. And then finally, quarterly, 
you get together off-site for two to four hours with your team to invest in training. And that rhythm really does create something that you can manage to. If you think about this, every single week, you have a sales meeting. The team naturally is a part of that. will start to get better. If you incorporate sales practice into it, you're going to find out really quickly how good your team is and where they can improve. And the cool thing is, as you practice, you will see them get better and they will see themselves get better. Every single week, you do that. Now, every month, you take every single team member out. And again, you're not talking about their job performance. You're asking them how their life is going. You're asking them, do they like working here? How can I be a better boss for you? What kinds of things can I be doing and the company be doing to help you go where you want to go? And then finally, every quarter you invest in training offsite, two to four hours. That creates a rhythm that is really, really powerful. Your team by meeting weekly knows what to expect. They understand that they're going to be accountable every single week for their performance. They're going to know if they're winning. They're going to know if they're losing. And good things happen when the team meets regularly. Now, every single month, as you meet with your team members out of the office, what I would do when I had a lot of team members is I would generally go to Starbucks and schedule you know, back-to-back-to-back-to-back one-hour meetings. It was like a revolving door at the Starbucks. But what I've found is that this will breathe life into your team and give you loyalty from them and credibility that I, I, don't, I don't know if it's possible to get without this kind of an investment. And just think about it. Have you ever had a boss in your company take you out for lunch or a cup of coffee every single month and just pour into you? And just they just give you any kind of wisdom they have. They ask how they can be helping you, where they can be a better boss for you, and, and where you're trying to go in your life and what they can do to help enable you to get there. That creates something really powerful. You know, it goes back to Matt Bradley's episode this season about meaning. And by the way, I got so much awesome feedback about Matt's episode. That I mean, it really resonated with me and it was cool to hear how it resonated with with everybody else too. But but that creates meaning. And and Many people think, I, I, I don't have time to do that. And I, I would just say, if you don't have time to do that, you don't have time to be a manager. Because again, being a manager or a leader is not about your individual performance. It's about how you can inspire your team. And when you meet with them monthly to just invest in them, that will inspire them. And then finally, quarterly. This is when you can take an intentional deep dive. So like, Imagine every quarter you take two to four hours and maybe at first you review the company's core values and you celebrate areas where the team has excelled in this. And you can have the team give kudos and highlights of where people have pushed into the core values and and done a great job with them. You know, if you have a sales team, you can spend some time working on your sales process. You could bring in someone to coach or train your team. If you're a general manager of a business and maybe this quarterly meeting is with your leadership team, you could have an inspirational speaker come in to talk to them. You could go through the objectives that you accomplished this quarter and you could talk about what's going to happen next quarter. You can train the team on time management. There, there's so many things you can do, whether you're managing a sales team, an installation team, or a leadership team. Every single quarter, if you can build this rhythm of two to four hours out of the office working on your craft, it's incredible how that investment starts to pay off. So it's a long answer to the question, but I would say starting with a framework of management, a weekly meeting with your team, 
a monthly one-on-one that is not about their job performance. It's, it's an investment in them as people. And then a quarterly deep dive with your entire team out of the office to invest in serious training. Good things will happen and that will allow you to start to get results. So hope that helps you out. And I know that that's a, it's a tough question. A lot of people wrestle with that. And, and it was something that I wrestled with for a long time as well. Okay. Next question here. And this is a really, really good one. It's a short question. Should we start an annual service plan? How about offering extended warranties? Man, okay, my answer to this question is yes and yes. Um, You know, I think anything you can do to get subscription revenue in your business, you you should. Um, Having subscription revenue gives you a level of consistency with your financials that is unparalleled. And obviously service is a lower dollar amount, but in addition to the consistency of revenue, this will keep you close to your customers. Like, you know, for businesses, as an example, who don't offer their own installation or who maybe only employ one service technician and they give the rest of their service work out to subcontractors in their area. I'm not saying that that is a terrible decision necessarily, but if that's what your business is doing, you are likely just giving that customer away completely. You may have won the initial appliance sale. They're winning the next appliance sale. They, they, they really are. And this happens a lot with chimney companies, right? When, when hearth retailers don't want to service chimneys and take care of them and they refer them to the local chimney sweep, oftentimes the retailer never hears from that customer again because the chimney company jumps on it and they start taking care of them year after year after year after year. You know, 400 bucks, 600 bucks one year, 200 bucks the next year, $1,000 the next year. And all of a sudden it comes time for a new appliance and then boom, you know, there's the appliance sale because they have built the credibility. So all of that to say, I would really, really recommend it. And there's different ways that you can do this. I would consider bundling the annual service plan with the extended warranty. This is, I was having a conversation with a retailer about this pretty recently and it would be a really, really good idea. You know, if the customer is willing to be on the annual service plan to extend that factory warranty for, you know, some amount of time. And, and really that makes sense, right? If you calculate your warranty rate and you figure like, well, what would it take if we extended the electrical warranty on this gas fireplace for another year or another two years? You know, what would happen in a pellet stove if we extended the warranty for some amount of time, if we are servicing it every single year? I, I think that things like that are very powerful. And, and what they do is they start to give you a value wedge. And the best example I'll give, so this, this doesn't have to do with the annual service plan, but it does have to do with the extended warranty. So, I mean, six years ago or so now, me and my wife were looking to buy a car. We saved up for years and years and years for this purchase, and it was a really big deal to us. So we knew the model of car that we wanted. We knew approximately the year, and we were looking at at cars. And we were originally going to buy a car that was a couple of years old to save money, but the more that we started to shop at least at this one dealer in our town, there wasn't a huge difference between buying a used car and a new one. And for me, I swore I would never buy a new car in my life for all the reasons you hear about. As soon as you drive off the lot, you lose a third of your value, all those things. But the more that I shopped it, the difference between new and used was not that much. And one dealer in particular in our town 
took the standard factory warranty, which was 60,000 miles on a new car, and they extended it to 200,000. Now, the used cars didn't have a warranty anywhere near that, and, and they were a little bit less expensive, but me and my wife decided that we were going to buy the new car with a 200,000 mile warranty. Now, as I sit here today recording this, the car has about 92,000 miles on it and literally nothing's broken on it. So, I mean, who knows, you know, maybe in the rest of the time that we have it, we will, you know, get our money's worth for paying extra and buying the new car because of the warranty, but, but maybe not. And what I'll tell you is this though, for me as the consumer, the peace of mind of the extended warranty was huge. And even though the car was a little bit more expensive than other places, there was a value wedge that no one else could exploit because no one else offered an extended warranty. So I would really consider doing something like that in your business. If you've got a good manufacturer, man, I mean, maybe you just, as a, as a normal thing, you say that, yeah, you know, our competitors offer this warranty. We extend the factory warranty by two years on this. And here's why our guys do the best job. When we come out for annual maintenance, we make sure that this thing is working the way that it should. And that way we can extend the warranty for you. So I know that that answer went a couple of different directions, but I would say yes and yes, absolutely start an annual service plan, you know, keep it relatively low priced, but this will keep your customers close to you. And, you know, sometimes customers may not be convinced that they need an annual service plan. So offering the carrot of an extended warranty, if they're on that plan, and then once that warranty runs out, you could offer a discount on all service parts, right? If you're part of our annual service plan, you get 25% off of your service parts, whatever that looks like for you. I think that that is, is very tangible in value to the customer. And it's something that, you know, no one can argue with it and and no one, you know, in your market is likely going to do the same thing. Okay. Next question. Um, and okay, this is one that we've actually, we've gotten before, but this is, uh, this is a good one. Can you help me build a compensation plan for my salespeople? I need to know where to start. So this is from a, a dealer that's on the East coast and you, you've heard me talk, you know, again, earlier this season about compensation plans and, as I talked about, there's three basic models that I love to start with as like a basic framework. If you're building a compensation plan for retail salespeople, you can go back and listen to that episode to hear it in detail. I'll just go through these really, really quickly. The first one is where you offer a low base salary, and then you offer a commission percentage once that salesperson sells more than a certain amount during the month. So say that you set the number at 40,000. They would make their base salary and they would earn a commission once their sales exceed $40,000 for that month. Now, in addition to that, you offer a three-tiered bonus at at different dollar amounts. So say at $60,000, you offer a $200 bonus. At $80,000, you offer a $600 bonus. And at $100,000, you offer a $1,000 bonus. So it's, it's kind of a game. But once the salesperson clears that $40,000 threshold, they start earning commission, and then they've got these three marks to shoot for to try to get a bonus every single month. So that, that, that's the first one. And there's, there's, you know, there's good things and there's bad things with that plan. As, as is true with any compensation plan, there are strengths and there are weaknesses. You can go back and listen to, I believe it was the first episode of this season, it might have been the second one, and, uh, and you can listen to some detailed thoughts on that. Second compensation plan is you offer a low base salary 
and you offer a commission on every sale. But there's still a threshold, and let's just pretend that that threshold was $50,000. On sales up to $50,000, you would offer a lower commission threshold. Once sales cross $50,000, their entire commission percentage for the month doubles. So every single month, they have a chance to earn double commission if they can exceed this number. In addition to that, I like to give a 1% quarterly bonus. If the team member can hit their sales goal for a quarter, they're given a 1% quarterly bonus on the gross sales that they sold that quarter. So again, there's strengths and weaknesses to that plan as well. And you can go back and listen to that episode for details about those strengths and weaknesses. But that's the second plan that I really like. The third one is only for a true sales professional. And that's a plan that is pure commission. And in order to make this work, you have to have your job costing down tight. But basically, you pay a sliding scale commission based on the gross margin of the job. And what you'll do is you'll set a threshold where when something is below a certain margin, there's no commission. So say you set your percentage at 30%. So any job under 30%, gets paid $0 in commission. But maybe between a 30 and a 32 margin, the salesperson makes 2%. Between a 32 and a 34, they make 3%. And you can stair-step that all the way up. Usually a plan like that is going to max out around 10%, maybe 11% if that gross margin exceeds 50%. And again, there's strengths and weaknesses to that. This plan is only for the mature salesperson it's not for somebody that that is entry level in any way. But if you've got a rock star that knows how to manage their money and understands how to run a book of business, this can be a really, really powerful comp plan. Now, okay, I went through that really quickly, and I, and I want to give um, a couple of thoughts that that we didn't really touch on in in that episode about compensation plans. You know, I believe that a compensation plan is a vehicle to give your people the life that they want. That's what it is. Jim Collins in Good to Great talks about how a compensation plan in and of itself will not motivate people. What a compensation plan is about is about attracting and retaining. And 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 that's different than motivating. You know, attracting means, you know, someone's looking at your business is the compensation plan attractive enough for them to say yeah, I, I want to work here, then, then your compensation plan is working if, 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 if people are doing that. If, if, you're, if people are saying, I don't want to work there or they're not showing up you know, for their second job interview, it's likely that you have a problem with your compensation plan. That doesn't mean pay people whatever they want, but there's something about your compensation plan that's not attractive. Now, the next thing is about retaining is that for people who are in your business and are already motivated, you want your compensation plan to be able to retain them. And and that means a couple things. That means the compensation plan has to pay them a fair wage, hopefully a very generous wage. And it would be very advantageous if that compensation plan had some room to grow as they continued to grow as well. That's that's not absolutely necessary, uh, but that is is you know very very helpful oftentimes the thing i will say is that while compensation plans will not motivate 
you know, people are, are motivated by, by many other things and they are motivated by money, but, but only up to a point. And there was some research done a, a while back that basically said like, once you hit $70,000, um, money being a, a catalyst for motivation, just, it just gets less and less and less and less. Um, all of that to say, when people are working for you and they're really good at their job, they very well may have other offers come their way. Your compensation plan is a sign of respect to them. And so while your compensation plan you know, doesn't need to necessarily motivate them, it does need to show them respect. And, and more money can mean more respect. So, so that's, the, that's the purpose of your compensation plan. You want, you want to think about it that way. Where, where I like to start is I like to think about you know, in the market that I'm in, what is a generous wage to pay a career professional? And, and you know, there's going to be a number that comes into your head when you think about that. What's a generous wage to pay a career professional? Then think about, okay, what would I need to get performance-wise to be able to pay that wage? And then from there, you can start to put a plan together. And, and I'll, I'll give you a, a couple of ex- examples. So one of them is when, when Matt Bradley started working with me at Wi-Fi a few years ago, he started out part-time. He was a school teacher and he worked for me for about a year and a half part-time. And we started talking about him taking the leap to come on board full-time and, and, you know, me and Matt are, are really, really good friends and there's a high level of trust. And I just asked him, you know, where do you need to be to feel really comfortable with this? Because you're leaving a very stable job for a new company in a new industry. And if you can let me know what that number is, I can let you know if we can do this. So he gave me a number and we couldn't afford it right away. And so as we talked about it, what we decided is, Here's the level of performance that we need to get to as a company to be able to afford this number. And once we have been able to do the work together to grow the company to this point, you've got your job and you've got your salary. And that worked really, really well. And I've done something, you know, very similar with, with salespeople in the past and asked them about, you know, where does the number need to be? And we'll build a plan or set sales goals in order for them to hit that number. And then the the compensation plan becomes a vehicle for them to achieve their dreams. And and that creates meaning and that creates respect and and hopefully both, you know, attractiveness and and retention as well. I'll tell you another story is that I've got a programmer that doesn't live in the United States. And as as we have gotten to work with him more and more and more, he's he's we just seen he's he's excellent at what he does. And so as we've been moving from using him just a little bit to using him more and more and more and starting to, you know, take a bigger chunk of his time, we've just tried to ask him like, what, what's a number that you're going to feel really good about, about working for that will be able to give us more priority and make you feel really, really good about taking on this work. And so he gave us a number and we were able to look at that and decide, can we afford it? can we not? And, you know, in this case we could. So we said, you got it. Like, let's do this and, and, and let's really take this thing somewhere. The point of all that is you want to pay generously. And if you can't pay generously, you better have a really good cause or an incredible amount of meaning that you can create 
in this job or it's going to be really, really hard to attract people. And again, I'm not talking out of both sides of my mouth saying that, that, that money by itself motivates, but what I am saying is that money and the ability to provide for, you know, a family and and save money and things like that, that creates meaning for people because they're able to, again, provide for their families, buy the house that they wanted, get out of poverty. Those things create meaning and people will work for meaning. So, you know, however you want to take that question, um, that is the philosophy behind a compensation plan. And I would recommend attacking it that way. Okay. We've got two more questions here. Um, this one comes from Jeff in Colorado. It's a really good question. Here's what he says. Got a question from this podcast episode. The one he's talking about is uh, the one on, on building sales compensation plans. And he says, I've got a question on this episode surrounding the sales bonus. From those that give bonuses, is any of it given to the installers? My thought is to share the bonus between sales and installation since they both really rely on each other. Curious if you have an opinion on this. Well, it, that's a really, really good question. M- my personal opinion is to keep them separate, but you know, make your own application on this. If if you have found a way to combine it, where you know the team relies on each other, and, and you want everyone to win in that, I, I'm not against that. It's just not something that I've done before. The reason that I like to keep them separate is because I try to bonus people on what they have direct responsibility for. And, and there, you can blur those lines a little bit, but I feel like the, the salesperson's job is to sell the job at the proper price, make sure that the product solves the customer's problem and prepare whatever the next step is for success, whether that's the estimator or whether that's the installer. I feel like the installer's job is to take what they've been given plus the unknowns of the home and install that thing perfectly within the amount of time that they've been given to do it. And those are two very, very different functions. Now, they they are connected in the sense that one does affect the other. There's no question about that. You know, as a salesperson, I've had situations where the, the sale of the job went really well and the customer had a terrible encounter with the installers and and I got a call and you know I got I got ripped up over the, over the phone because of it vice versa I've made huge mistakes on the sales floor that have set installers up for failure and I've gotten calls from them furious at me and and rightfully so because I didn't do the things I needed to do so so there is a connection between the two but I I do think the jobs are are different you know when it when it comes to salespeople I I would highly recommend bonusing them on sales. And again, I love a quarterly bonus. I love it. I love it. I love it. And and the reason I like it is that you only pay it out if the team hits their sales goal for the quarter. And that protects you as a, as a business owner, right? I mean, if you were to say right now, hey, if you were guaranteed that you were going to hit the quarterly number that you wanted, would you pay out an extra 1% in commission? I mean, most business owners would say, uh, yes, if I had that guarantee, absolutely, right? So I like a quarterly bonus for that reason. It guarantees some amount of sustained performance, but there's not so much riding on it. Like if you had only a yearly bonus, if they get three quarters of the way through the year and don't think they're going to be able to hit it, 
it can discourage them the rest of the the year. So I like a quarterly bonus quite a bit for salespeople. I'm okay with that being a team bonus. You you probably heard me talk about this um, in last season's episode with Tim Rethlake. Um, I've never done it personally on sales teams, but if I were to jump into a specific sales management role again, I would absolutely institute a team bonus for the sales team. And even though individually there are things that you want to compensate people for, there are team aspects to the sale that are very, very important. And and while you may not have direct control over the salesperson's performance next to you, you have influence and you can help them either close that sale or answer the question, which boosts the team. It's not quite like that in the relationship between sales and installation. So that's my advice for salespeople. For installers, again, I think you want a bonus on different things. Now, absolutely, sales, they can set them up for failure and I'm not totally opposed to having a, a combined goal, but what what I would say is for installers, I would recommend bonusing them on things like installation completion percentage. So say that they've got 20 jobs in the course of the week, and if they get all 20 of those jobs done completely within the time frame allotted for them, man, I, I think that that's worth a small bonus. And and again, being able to offer a weekly bonus, I, I think that that is powerful And I think that that shows respect to the installers. I think it also provides them opportunity to save money, to, you know, invest in their families, to be, to be generous to the people around them. And that can create meaning. So I'm a big, big fan of that. Another thing you could do, I know, you know, Grant Falco does this in his company is he offers compensation for total installed revenue per week. So this is probably going to take a more mature team, but Man, if if you tell your installers, man, if you can get your installed revenue above X, I'm going to give you Y. And I think that that provides an incredible target to shoot for. So I, I think that installation is a little bit different. What what I guess I would say is if you want to compensate both installation and sales together, you could consider a like a like a quarterly profit share or maybe a profit share every 6 months that's trickled down to the whole company and just talk about how hey as we help each other and the company's profitable you're all going to share in this but i guess i would say you know from from a a bonus whether it's a, a weekly monthly or quarterly bonus i my personal advice would be to to bonus sales on sales related things and bonus installers on installed related things and that way you can train them specifically to that behavior Okay, last question. This is a really, really good one. How do you figure out if a customer has the budget before you send someone out to their house, which may end up being a waste of time? And this question comes from the Southeast and it's a retail sales associate out there. Okay, this is a really, really good question. And what I would say is that I see this happen all the time where People go out to someone's house to take a look at it and the customer's like, well, wait a minute. I thought this thing only cost 700 bucks and it's 4,000 or 6,000 or 8,000. And I've made this mistake a lot. I, I think it comes down to following the sales process. This is why it's so important to follow that process. And, and next season, in, in season 11 of this podcast, we're going to do a lot on the sales process. But until then, I would say you got to follow it. So 
Here's the seven steps of the sales process very, very quickly. I'm going to want to go in and explain each one of them. I'm going to try not to. Okay. Step one, greet the customer. Step two, understand their problem. Step three, advise a solution. Step four, explain the process. Step five, call to action. Step six, pursue the opportunity. Step seven, show gratitude. Okay. Those are the seven steps of the sales process. By following that process, you will be able to figure out if the customer has the budget. And here's the way that that I like to do that. So after I go through the greeting of a customer, we go to step two, which is understand their problem. And I'll sit down with the customers you've heard me talk about and say, well, hey, you know, as you can see, we have all kinds of fireplaces on display and not every fireplace is actually safe to be installed in every home situation. So if it's okay, I'd love to have a seat and just learn a little bit more about your project. And that way, I can recommend a fireplace. It's a really good fit. Would that be all right? We sit down and I go through a list of questions and these are pre-scripted questions. You know, okay, hey, tell me a little bit about your space. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Now, when this is all said and done, what are you hoping that this fireplace does for you? Okay, that makes sense. And you said you wanted to burn wood, right? Okay, cool. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Okay, so, so we go through all these questions that's going to start to give me a sense of who this customer is and what kind of project they're working on. And I'm going to be able to make some assumptions about their budget or at least about the budget of what the project will take. Now, when we move to step three, which is advise a solution, and now we go in front of the products, I'm talking about that wood stove or that gas insert. As I'm talking about that fireplace, I will throw out lures of a price range of what an average install is. So I can be talking about this fireplace and say, yeah, so this model is really cool and it does this, this, and this. And that's really important because you mentioned that you were looking for something that does this, this, and this. I'll reference back to what we talked about earlier in the understanding phase. And I'll say something like, yeah, so this is a really popular model. You know, most people on a model like this end up spending somewhere between like, you know, $8,000 and $10,000. depends a little bit on, on the criteria of the installation. And then I'll keep moving to the next thing I'm going to talk about, but I'm going to watch that customer. As I talk about products, I want to throw out these ballpark price ranges. And I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to plant the seed of what this costs. I want to look at that customer and, and just see, can I tell any, any just visually looking at it, can, can I tell if there's resistance in this? If there's a lot of resistance, you know, customers will stop you and say, wait a minute, these things cost eight grand? I mean, we, we can't spend that on a fireplace. And from there you can backpedal and you can say, okay, you know, well, what was the budget that you were expecting to spend? And you can, and you can talk about that, but it's really, really important that you throw out those anchors to make sure that, that the customer's on board and you're not wasting their time and, and they're not wasting your time, but it doesn't end there. Okay. So, so during step three of the sales process, I like to throw those kind of lures out. Now, when we move to step four of the process, which is explain the process, that's step four of our sales process, I explain it in three simple steps what we're about to do. So for most businesses, right, after, if this is how their their business is set up, I'll say something along the lines of this, you know, hey, Mrs. Customer, or hey, Mr. Customer, it looks like this, this gas insert is going to be a really good fit for, you know, all these reasons that we talked about. So I'd love to just explain the way that, that all of our jobs work just so that you're really clear on, on how the process goes. Step one, before you leave today, I'll write you up an estimate for this so that way you understand approximately what the job's going to cost. 
Step two, if those numbers look good, we can send our estimator out to take a look at your house and they're just going to make sure that there was nothing missed in our conversation today and they'll confirm the exact number of that job. And then step three, if you feel comfortable moving ahead, we'll go ahead and get this thing scheduled so you can start enjoying your fireplace. Okay. Now you've heard me talk about this in detail before if you've listened to past episodes, but every single time I explain those three steps, step one is an estimate. Step two, if those numbers look good, we'll send out an estimator. Step three, if you feel comfortable moving ahead, we'll go ahead and get this thing scheduled. By explaining it in that way, I'm telling the customer, hey, this is where we're going, but don't worry, you've got an off-ramp if you're not ready, right? So yes, we write the estimate, but, but step two, if those numbers look good, we'll send our estimator out to your house. The implication being, if the numbers don't look good, we won't send the estimator out. And then step three, if you feel comfortable moving ahead, we'll go ahead and get that thing scheduled for you. Okay, so we explain the process and then we move to step five, our call to action. We call the customer to action to write up the estimate. And what I believe is magic is in the showroom, write an estimate range. And it needs to be tighter than the range you just gave them of what most people spend, right? So when you say, hey, yeah, most people spend between eight and $10,000 on a project like this, or, you know, most people spend anywhere from like 6,000 to about, you know, $9,000 or so, depending on the particulars of the project. But, you know, don't worry, we'll we'll get you a, a more firm number before you leave, right? So when you're, when you're talking to the customer during step three, you're using very large, very vague ranges of what the average installation price is. Now that we're calling the customer to action, we're writing up a specific range for their project. So if the range you gave them on the showroom floor is $2,000, make your range on this written bid 900 bucks. You're leaving enough of a range that they still need the in-home visit to confirm the number, but you're being very clear, I think this is where your project's going to be. When you physically write that down on a piece of paper, you print it out from your, you know, estimator tool, either way is fine. But what you do is you show that to the customer and then you say, yeah, so it looks like, you know, for your project, this is about where you're going to be. Would there be a good day next week for our estimator to come out? If they say yes, they're willing to spend that money. I mean, no one looks at something they can't afford and says, oh yeah, when can the estimator come out to my house? Now, if they say no, they're giving you a yellow light and it's up to you to push into why that is. Chances are it's because of the budget. Now, this is assuming your company offers free in-home visits, which I would highly, highly, highly encourage you to do. If you offer free in-home visits and you have picked out a product that solves your customer's problem, the only reason they're not scheduling the free in-home visit unless they're going on vacation or something like that is because they don't like your price. So if you show them the price, And then you say, yeah, would there be a good day next week for our estimator to come out? And if they say, oh, no, um, you know, I'll let you know. But, you know, I thanks. Thanks for giving us the the estimate. You got to push into that yellow light. And I would advise saying something like this, like, "Okay, well, hey, that's no problem at all. Um, Now, can I ask you, how does how does this estimate look compared to what you thought you'd spend on this project? Now, notice that I, I like to say, how does this compare to what you thought you'd spend? I'm not asking them, can they afford it? I'm not asking, what's your budget? Because for most retail customers, they don't know their budget. They've never bought one of these things before. So whatever number they give you for the budget is irrelevant. 
And to ask, can you afford it? That's a, you know, an insulting question. But when you say, how does that compare to what you thought you'd spend? You're asking a question about expectations. How do your expectations align with the expectations I've just given you? And a customer will often say, oh man, it's quite a bit more. And you can say, oh yeah, what, what were you expecting to spend on this? And they might tell you, oh, we were expecting to spend $4,500. At that point, you can either say, okay, well, man, if, uh, if the budget is the most important thing to you, you know, we do have a model that's in your price range, but there's going to be some features that it's not going to have. Would you want to look at that model or do you think that this one might be a better fit, right? Let them answer that question. Now it could be that you just got to stand up for your value and just say, yeah, I mean, this, this is what these cost, but I think it's really going to help you. I mean, um, don't you think it makes sense for us to come out and take a look at it? So, so it's up to you to push into that and you can decide how you want to play it. But if a customer is looking at the number and says no to your free in-home visit, that yellow light is almost certainly because they have a problem with your price. And again, many times it's a red herring and just by simply talking about the expectations, customers will change their tune and book the in-home visit. So, you know, that, that would be my advice. One piece of nuance that I, I want to add to that is regarding the budget number. I said budget is irrelevant. What I would say is it's irrelevant if it is a homeowner in a non-new construction or remodel project. New construction and remodel is a different story, especially new construction. And new construction, asking the budget, in my opinion, is one of the most important things you can do. And the reason why is that when someone's building a new construction home, right, they are taking out a giant loan from the bank or you know, the contractor is. And in order to get that loan, you know, everything in the house gets specced with a budget number. The carpet has a budget. The lights have a budget. The paint has a budget. The fireplace has a budget. If it's a new construction or high-end remodel project where a bank loan is involved, you look like a pro when you ask, yeah, and what was the budget number that, that you guys had for this fireplace here? And that's going to tell you something. My advice in that situation, I know this isn't the question, but it's just something to think about. My advice in that situation is I try to always have an option that will fit that budget and then another option that is the right fireplace for the house. And for me, one of my goals in sales in general, I just want to take price off the table. If budget's the most important thing, we'll find you something that's going to be in your budget range, in, unless it's like totally unreasonable. And that's in that case, you know, I mean, we, we can't help you. There's someone else that can. But but if their budget, you know, is is within a range of something we can help them with, I want to find that something to show I want to work with you, but I want to prove my expertise by saying, but I, I think that this is going to be a lot better fit, and here's why. So... Uh, yeah, that's how I figure out if a customer has the budget before sending someone out to their house. Uh, I follow the sales process. And if you follow the sales process too, I think that you're not going to find you go chasing many, you know, wild hairs at, at, at people's houses who can't afford what you do. So these are really, really good questions. And uh, yeah, and just thank you to everybody that, that sent them in. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really honored to answer these and, uh, and I hope it helps you. All right. Well, I hope you guys got a ton of value out of that question and answer episode. 
These are some of my favorite episodes of the podcast, and these questions were so, so good. You know, I I very recently got back from Eastern Canada, as I, as I mentioned. I went out to the Compact Appliances trade show out there, and there are so many cool events that I get to go to every year, but man, um, there's something amazing that is just there in, in Atlantic Canada that, that compact has tapped into. And the people there are so kind. I just, I, I find myself, uh, just inspired. And a couple of these questions came from some of those dealers. And so it's really cool to be able to, uh, to answer that and, and to be able to, uh, to spend some time out there As I actually record this. I'm, I'm literally drinking an iceberg beer from, uh, from Newfoundland, which is beer that's made from the water of icebergs. And, uh, I smuggled some back in my, my suitcase when I, when I left Newfoundland a, a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, I think what I'm seeing though, the reason I, I tell you that story of where I've been is as I travel, I'm seeing that things are tightening up and it's not that the bottom is totally fallen out, but it's that the market is softened and people are still buying fireplaces, but not as many. And for many, many companies, they're so used to fish just jumping into the boat that they've forgotten what it's like to go out and fish or they've forgotten what it's like to go out and plant a field and water it and cultivate it and care for it, that muscle in many businesses has atrophied. It really has. I mean, as, as I, as I look around in all my travels, that's what I'm seeing. And, and so now is the time to invest in your sales process, in your management, in your installers. Now is the time to tighten up the screws because if you can do it, I'm telling you, most businesses aren't. And if we're going to carry our industry forward, we need good companies that are willing to play offense. And, uh, you know, and, and the, and the fact that you're listening to this shows that, that, that you're willing to invest in your business, that you're trying to make a difference. You're trying to make change. And even though it's difficult, that effort over time, it will yield fruit. It just will. And so, you know, my hope for you as, as we go into the summer here, my hope is that you use this time to get really serious about your sales process. I think that now more than ever, it's needed and the companies that can invest in it are the companies that are going to do really well. So as we close out, if this podcast episode has been a blessing for you and you want to support this show financially, you can do that by going to the website, patreon.com slash it's fire time. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash it's fire time. And this season is now wrapped up 10 seasons in the bank. And man, it's amazing to think about that. The plan for the rest of the summer is that we are going to shift to Firetime Magazine rapid reaction episodes. And again, if you've listened to this podcast for any amount of time, you know that in between season, this is, this is what we do, where we listen together to an audio article from the Firetime Magazine. As soon as it's over, I hit record and I give you my immediate rapid reaction to it. And these are really, really fun episodes for me. They're a little bit shorter and it's just cool to be able to speak just very raw and, and, and freely after hearing some super, super good content. So that's what we'll jump into next week. And the Tuesday after Labor Day, we will be back with season 11 of the Firetime Podcast. So thank you so much for listening this season. I hope it's helped you. 
Go out there and make a difference for your people and your company. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time. All in to burn. 